11 years ago, we were 7 billion, and I think about 12 or 13 years ago before that, we were 6 billion. So I've seen a world that was just over 5 billion and heading towards 8 billion. But for every bad example in China and India, there have been many other very fantastic examples of family planning initiatives in Thailand, in Costa Rica, and also in most of the global north where we've had waves of the feminist movement and now it's seen as okay to have smaller families and that doesn't necessarily have to impact on the male sense of virility or a woman's sense of being complete. Welcome to This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature, where we introduce you to guests who are working to save our natural world, and then offer them a chance to take on a personal challenge to make their lives more joyful and fulfilling through exploring their values. Today, I'm here talking to Michael Bayless. Michael, how are you? Oh, thank you for having me on again, Eugene. I'm doing well, thank you. I'm excited to have you back. Last time you were here, we talked a lot about overpopulation, which is kind of a, a sticky subject for a lot of people, but it's something mm -hmm. that you have chosen to take on and devote a large portion of your time to talking about. How, how's it going? Well, on the 15th of November, which at, at time of recording is, is still in the future, the planet will hit 8 billion people. So, you know, obviously, if you're working in the realm of population, it's a very exciting, uh, perhaps not excitable for the good reasons, but excitable just because we're doing a lot. We're releasing articles, we've got a writer's competition, we're sending out information, myth-busting to journalists, everyone in Sustainable Population Australia, including myself, are being interviewed by uh, various media outlets in Australia at the moment. So it's all hands on deck. In just 11 years, we the Earth's population increased by another billion people, which equates to around um, 90 million per year. That's insane. That's a lot of people in a very short amount of time. But you can't talk about that, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. Yeah, it, it's, it's something that is really, really hard to talk about. It's really, really controversial. And I imagine it's probably something that you probably have to face a lot, right? Do you face a lot of backlash from people that don't like talking about overpopulation? All the time. I mean, on the right, you got the classic Liz Truss in the UK um, who mm -hmm. bemoaned about the anti-growth coalition. And like, you know, anyone who's at the top and um, threatened by the oppressed, they always make the oppressed sound more uh, powerful than they actually are. But the, the great thing about that is an anti-growth coalition started because of her comments. So, you know, be careful of, um, of what you're bemoaning. That's all I can say. But also on the left of the political spectrum, and even in the degrowth and post-growth movements, people such as myself mm -hmm. constantly bombarded with criticism and false assumptions on our morality, um, et cetera, et cetera. Typically around what I call false dilemma arguments, mm -hmm. like, for example, if you're talking about population, 
um, then you're ignoring wealth inequality or the fact that the you know the top ten percent of the population owns more than fifty percent of the wealth. And my response has always been. It's an and argument, not an either or. And for some reason, human psychology struggles with that, where you always have to create us and them divisions. It's more like a Venn diagram, isn't it? We we overlap Mm -hmm. on so many issues. It's just that we also have opinions out here and, and, and out there as well. And it doesn't have to be wrong just because it's not overlapping. And it doesn't have to be exclusive just because it's not overlapping. And yes, Sustainable Population Australia is a single issue mostly organisation, and I do focus my time... Well, I focus my time on degrowth and post-growth, of which population is a component, Um, but it's a single issue because everyone else tends to misconstrue it. So it has to be until the wider world actually understands the issue for what it is. Yeah, I feel like this is a problem that we kind of see in a lot of areas of environmentalism, you know, even the stuff with renewable energy and stuff like that. It it very often comes to that same kind of thing. It's like fossil fuels pollute. Yeah, well, so do batteries. Batteries pollute. And and when you make wind turbines too, they pollute and people will, they'll kind of, they want to keep everybody polarized and people really just kind of, they want things to be like real black and white all the time. And it can be just really, really frustrating to deal with. Which is why I believe the environmental movement also needs a revolution in conscious shifting, which is, you know, a lot of my uh, beliefs lie in the realm of holistic holistic activism as a movement that my um, friend also living in Albany and my co-host for Post Growth Australia runs. And, and that's based on some Buddhist and non-dual beliefs but it's it's hindered on look we all live in a world of uncertainty the natural and physical worlds are vastly more complex than our five senses can grasp that our stories that we create are useful for chunking things down but if you identify with your story that's where the problem comes in because it means if someone else comes in with a different story that you're going to be angry because it's a threat to your identity, which I I think is the crux of why population is such a taboo because, you know, at least with fossil fuels, there are enemies, there are um, the the, the evil, you, you know, mining magnate or whatever. With population, it involves all of us, so I suppose... Right. It means we have to look in the mirror and see ourselves a bit, bit as our ally and as our enemy. And we don't like that because we like to be the victims who are in the right. And so, yeah, I think yeah. that's pretty central yeah. to why. Yeah, We get into these arguments among environmentalists, you know, people who are all, you know, all for trying to stop climate change. Even amongst those groups, we get into these arguments of, you know, is it the fault of corporations and governments, or is it individuals, right? Yes, we understand that corporations and governments hold a lot of blame, and there is certainly a lot that they can do to change. But there also has to be a little bit of looking in the mirror and realizing that they are selling us a product, or they are trying to give us what we want, right? They, if, if we're choosing to drive 
you know, gasoline cars all the time, and we want to use single-use plastics, we're buying single-use plastics, then that's what they're going to provide. But a lot of people are just, they just really don't want to look in the mirror and take any blame for themselves. And the system that we have, we've all co-created it. I mean, you know, we're both the, the victim and the perpetrator or the passive observer or whatever. The fact that people bemoan um, being beholden to two oligopoly of governments that both pretty much do the same thing, you know, growth and tax concessions to the rich. It's like, well, why don't we all collectively vote for someone else? And I suspect that um, when it comes to voting day, people will vote for either two of the major parties. And this is this is constant all across the Anglosphere. You know, a lot of times because people invest in property and they want their property prices to continue to rise. We're all invested right. in a system. Um, and I know you posited a challenge to me a while ago, but, you know, that how housing and property is, is such a big thing to me uh, because I think it involves everyone. Um, we're all drawn into this game, this property speculation game, whether we mm -hmm. like it or not, renters, homeowners, you name it. And so in a, in a way, it's, it's very hard to tap out of the system when a basic human need, which is shelter, is so tied up in the neoliberal system. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's actually a very, very good segue. I was kind of looking <laughs> for a segue into going back to that. So thank you for providing that. <laughs> but yes, the last time that you were here, we did discuss a challenge and you agreed to take on a challenge. And so let's just let's just get into that and we can come back to population after. Can you remind us of what were your motivations for the challenge? and what your challenge was. Yes, I remember in the first interview, I was, it was a very different world for me. I was house-sitting in Adelaide, now I'm in Albany. Um, uh -huh. So the, the challenge that I, that I think that we both agreed on was to create an Extinction Rebellion-style protest against the Property Council or equivalent offices after I moved to Western Australia. And that's based on, you know, what we were talking about, that um, property developers have so much stranglehold over the very way that we live and a mm -hmm. huge contribution to environmental impact, you know, building a house and concreting over what remains of the natural world in order to do the next overdevelopment mm -hmm. is a huge contributor. So I took that challenge and I guess my short answer is that I haven't completed the challenge to the letter, partly because there's no property council office in Albany. It's a bit small for uh -huh. that. Secondly, uh, I, I have had a few distractions, but I've used the distractions to do a kind of a roundabout analogue to, to what the challenge is. So I'm still combating the system and overdevelopment and stuff like that. It just looks a little bit different from the original gotcha. challenge. Yeah. Can you, can you kind of walk me through it? Like, how did it start? And then, and then what happened? How did it change over time? What was it that made you change over time? I have detailed all, all of this in 
the season four premiere of Post Growth Australia podcast, which I co-host with Mark Allen, the founder of Town Planning Rebellion. So I suppose that's that's one thing. Now I'm co-hosting a podcast with a town rebellion guy. So that's that's one step in the right direction. Uh, he also moved to Albany around the same time. I, I suppose it's the equivalent of people moving to New Zealand. You know, it's uh, one of those uh-huh. kind of of Goldilocks zones climatically for future-proofing. But this is all detailed both in the episode and an article that I've got published medium called A Year in Asbestosville, A Farcical Tale of Systemic Failure. I actually did give it a read, but maybe for the listeners, could you give them kind of like the Reader's Digest version? Yeah, look, it's a 15-minute read. It's about 3,000 words and it's hard to condense. But look, what basically happened is I moved from Adelaide to Albany in a small gap between COVID lockdowns and I had to find a rental very quickly. And all the real estate agents were, you know, going, ooh, ooh, Albany is up and coming and um, there's, there's very little property and to rent and ooh, ooh, it's not a good time. The reason it wasn't a good time is because all the people rich from the mining industry in Western Australia, because they couldn't fly to Bali every month, they were bored. And so what they were doing was was buying up land down south uh, because it was something to do to to while away oh. the hours. So you know, okay. folks, this this is what the entitled do when they're bored, right. <laughs> and they Just buy some extra properties. Why not? If they if they can't fart fossil fuels into the atmosphere by their frequent <laughs> flies, well, they have to do something to make the world worse for everyone else so this is this is what they do in western australia um i i digress i'm supposed to be giving the reader's digest version here so anyway i i moved into an asbestos box and i signed a clause saying i realize i'm moving into an asbestos box it was um Mm -hmm. structurally damaged there were mice careening around the place the bedroom was at a 45 degree angle you're almost um uh worried you're going to roll off during the night (laughs) um all the carpets needed re-cleaning and even then there's fetid mold and all all for the privilege of 310 dollars a week um in in exchange rate i don't know what that is in u.s dollars probably a million u.s dollars a week because (laughs) exchange rate is doing shit compared to the u.s at the moment probably 600 a week yeah but then um mark from town planning rebellion bought a house i i bought land he bought a unit um, and and I helped him take the asbestos away from the unit. And we discovered a few facts that people just don't know. Um, firstly, in Western Australia, any lino flooring built before 1985 has white powdery asbestos in it, as does a lot of the window putties that hold the windows in place. That becomes friable, like loosens up and becomes powder right. and goes in the air. Basically, that can give you a range of lung diseases that kill you. Oh, yeah. Asbestos is super, super dangerous. I work in the construction industry, and every now and then we work on water pumping stations and things that were built, you know, 1930, 1940. You know, and so we do get those buildings where they tell you 
it's full of asbestos do not touch the walls don't don't bump the walls don't scratch the paint off or anything like that because you if you breathe in asbestos you'll know about it in about 10 years and it won't be good exactly and as as someone who works in the construction industry you'd know so full well what what an absolute hazard this is um but to cut a long story short i um had to leave my place immediately because there was full of white powder along the ripped lino floors and all the window putty was crumbling and creating dust everywhere and so i thought oh shit i've been breathing this in for the past six months and my lease was a couple of months away from ending and mark very kindly has let me uh, live in the unis so i had to leave immediately and just try to get the system to acknowledge that in a private rental this was actually a problem and it was just this bizarre almost kafka-esque game of gaslighting avoiding the problem handballing it to someone else and the system was just not geared to assist private renters out of this situation you know the real estates were of course being satanic as they always are um it comes to the territory of being a property manager but they they tried to insinuate that i was just trying to get out of this early because i bought some property it's just like no it's a year away from construction and then i called the health department and he said look we can't be too hard on the real estate industry and we can't give them too much red tape because australia is western australia is a prosperous state through our mining <laughs> and we can't hurt our property sector too much and huh. i was like i think the real estate industry is doing okay but it drove a point home that the lives and well-being of private renters are secondary to the wheels in motion of the real estate industry so you know the reality is life is cheap if you're a renter was that for you kind of the the impetus to be like okay you know what we're this i cannot stand i need to do something against this yeah 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 so i've documented it all down in an article i'm co-writing with mark uh, a policy change article that will come up after that once that's all done uh, which is hopefully a few days away we will take this to the mp and we will also take this to the albany advertiser i've had a few interviews around this we've got pgap so i'm making the issue as publicly known as possible in the meantime when i spend my time in the Perth Hills, I got together with a few community groups that are fighting against overdevelopment, like another road going through the hills, which is just going to allow more road traffic and um, no, no trains, of course, more, more mm -hmm. um, trucks and cars, whilst paving through an ecologically fragile remnant ecosystem, you know, same old story. So... <laughs> I thought not only will I give my time, some of my time to them, but I'll also bring them together into Post Growth Australia podcasts 
as well as an Albany group, and I was with them the other night going through this. Um, I'm going to bring a bunch of interviews and create a talking head story, so they're not only talking about the local issues, but bringing that back into the greater systemic discussion of why these spot fires need to be put out all the time and what we're up against. So <laughs> it isn't picketing against the property council officers, but it is bringing people into PGAP. It is bringing this asbestos issue into a wider discussion. And I think the wills are in motion. You know, I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to make sure that people hear about it and they're completely aware of the utterly broken system that they live in. It's such an example of ways that we end up poisoning and polluting ourselves just for the sake of of more growth, right? Sometimes inadvertently, sometimes quite purposefully. Have, have you come across engineered stone for kitchen bench tops? When I went to get my um, house built, they were pushing the engineered stone and this engineered stone for kitchen bench tops is causing diseases in the people that have worked from it. It might not be quite as bad for everyone. Like it doesn't, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't crumble and leak around after it's made. But for the people making it, it's quite hazardous. So, you know, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there, Eugene, when you say, ultimately, if we need to grow infinitely in a finite planet, nothing is sacred, including our lives and our health. Right. So I'm kind of thinking about this now all kind of in the context of the challenge that you decided to take on. And so yeah. what I'm getting is that it's a challenge that is still ongoing. But I like the way that the direction that your challenge has gone, trying to get more system change towards asbestos and trying to rally these community groups together, trying to bring more awareness to this. And so I feel like this is probably going to be something that is an ongoing thing for you. Maybe it's it's not a challenge that is ever going to come to a complete end, but something that you're going to be continuing to do going into the future. Is that accurate? Yeah. Look, I personally don't see an end to this because unless Australia does a complete system change in which property developers either don't exist, which would be ideally, or at least are the servants of local communities well this is a fight that's just going to continue if the predominant environmental narrative is green growth well this mm -hmm. is going to be an issue that's going to continue if there are still road blockages in addressing the root causes of overpopulation which is twofold i think sometimes the left can be our own enemies in being a road blockage to ensuring that access to family planning and reproductive health care is equally accessible no matter where in the globe you live secondly that our national population policies are generally dictated by big business and big finance um, so, for example, in Australia, our lead property developers and business leaders, you, you know, all want populations of 100 million people. And it's the one thing that the left won't question. It's just like, well, why do they want 
100 billion, what billion people? Why um, is Elon Musk so scared that we're going to depopulate when you know we've increased by 90 million people in the last 11 years? And and why is that? And I think Herman Daly, the one of the founders of the steady state system, who recently passed sadly, um, said that you know all tyrants need a ever growing base of um, serfs. In, in order to hold up their empires. It, it's a weird phenomena, but I think it has existed throughout the ages. You know, every empire has wanted to grow, grow, grow. And I think we've just seen another version of that. I'm not sure whether I'm getting too meta here, so feel free to <laughs> edit it out if I'm getting a bit sideways. But No, um, no. That's actually stuff that I do want to get into i actually had a conversation with someone just um an hour before we talked on this issue and it was based on well what what you're doing you know is the system too big can you actually change it or is it too big to fall and fail or 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 evolve or whatever and i said well probably but you know we've got two issues here either you can be quiet about it and let it happen and wait for collapse and more fascism and inequality or you can be a vocal opponent to it knowing that the odds are probably against you and that a form of collapse will likely happen but at least you don't regret having done nothing i'm not sure if that sounds too pessimistic, but I, I suppose I don't go into things with the expectation that I'm going to be the one who makes the change because I think ego can sometimes get in the way and then you can kind of turn yourself into a bit of a hero, get yourself very disappointed because, you know, the environmental movement, the modern one, you know, it's been around since at least the 60s. It's not through lack of effort that we're still here. But I, I think we just have to be part of the narrative. And I think one of the things I say, I, I'm an advocate of post-growth and degrowth. And on my podcast, we explore what the alternatives are. Because at least if we don't stop the growth machine prior to collapse, it does still mean that after collapse for whoever of us uh around you, you know there has been a dialogue so people are aware that it was growth that got us here and that there are ways that we can enact from this point forward so we have to evolve past this right yeah i feel like we should just talk exactly about this eight billion day that's coming up so let's see maybe you can just start by giving us a few of the facts and the details. What is 8 billion day? And can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. So on the 15th of November, the UN estimates that the global population will hit 8 billion. So uh, 11 years ago, we were 7 billion. And I think about 12 or 13 years ago before that, we were 6 billion. So I've seen a world that was just over 5 billion and heading towards 8 billion. That's a fair growth. Now, there are so many misassumptions about that. One is that the percentage 
of the world's growth is declining and so we don't have to worry about it. It's true if we're talking percentages, like I think the world's population growth has gone down from just over 2% to just over 1%. Um, but in terms of total numbers, because we've got such a large base number that we're working from, that still equates to between 80 and 90 million new people every year. So that's the equivalent of a new India every decade that mm. the world has to support. So I think there are so many misassumptions from the UN Population Fund itself that in their statement for World Population Day this year said that 8 billion people equal 8 billion opportunities and don't let the alarmists distract us from the work that needs to be done, which, I mean, I might be biased, but I'm interpreting that as a trivialisation of the issue from the organisation that should at least be, shit, this is still a problem. We need to increase the foreign aid budgets to ensure the 200 million plus unintended pregnancies every year are addressed in a non-coercive way in which women are empowered and have full access to family planning and reproductive healthcare systems and that patriarchy is pushed out of the way so women can do what they want worldwide and the trend is to have smaller families not larger families that is what people want we're actually getting in the way of that many people will, will say otherwise yeah i mean it was a it was a big issue here obviously you know this year with abortion rights here we saw how many people even on the conservative side of the aisle a lot of them agreed that women should have the right to choose. People want to have that choice, even if they would never do an abortion themselves. The vast majority of people think that you should have the freedom of choice to do so. Exactly. I think it's a similar thing when it comes to, to, to population. When we talk about degrowth, we're not talking about you know, the China one child law and things like that. We're talking about giving people access to more education and awareness and the ability for them to choose and make those decisions for themselves. And what we find, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like most people actually, when they're given the right information and when they're actually given the choice, they actually choose to have less children rather than more. And do you know who's left out of the debate around whether family planning is bad or not and whether mm -hmm. our involvement's bad or not? It's um, women in the global south, time and time again, left out and drowned out of the debate because well-meaning people on the left in the global north are arguing with each other. You know, I interviewed Florence Blondell um, born in Uganda. She now does amazing work for Population Matters based in the UK. She currently lives in the USA, on the mainland USA. And she's like, ask us, ask us. And she finds it an insult that we're denying this need. I've just talked to Isabella Cortez, Colombian-based Women for Conservation, 
who also says, you know, in Latin America, this is just people are screaming and demanding for contraceptive and health care services. And it's just so expensive and just so unavailable. And so, yeah, by all means, we need to be really careful. There have been some really bad examples in the past, but for every bad example in China and India, there have been many other very fantastic examples of family planning initiatives in Thailand, in Costa Rica, in Iran for a time, you know, and also in also in most of the global north where we've had the first and subsequent waves of the feminist movement. And now it's seen as okay to have smaller families and that doesn't impact on or doesn't necessarily have to impact on the male sense of virility or a woman's sense of being complete if if she has children or not and that we don't have this god-driven drive to populate or or perish i think our governments have that but you know the australian government tried to have a three-child policy in in the late 90s I remember the mantra, it's one for mum, one for dad, and one for the country. <laughs> wow. I know, I know. I've never but, heard of that. Oh, the Conservatives were being very um, patriotic in the late 90s in, in, in <laughs> Australia. And so that didn't work. And so what our Prime Minister John Howard did, and I take every opportunity to name and shame him, but he created a refugee crisis and demonised refugees and said, we're going to be in charge of the borders. Um, And so completely conflated all discussion around migration, around the refugee issue. Meanwhile, the government increased the economic migration program so that Australia would grow by the size of a new Canberra every year, you know, about 300,000 per year, mostly through economic migration, very little refugee migration, knowing fully well that it was such a charged issue that we couldn't actually see, you know, what was contributing and who was benefiting from that and who was not. You know, migrant exploitation in Australia is absolutely rife. Instead of having 300,000 a year, could we have, you know, 50 or 60,000 a year, but prioritise a humanitarian program? What makes that morally inferior to having a larger number, but one that disenfranchises people who don't have the financial means to get themselves out of dire consequences, you know, or, or dire situations? and also not addressing some of the root causes of why people are displaced. And one of those is the 200 million plus unintended pregnancies each year. It's not the only contribution to the to the problem at home, but it certainly didn't help Syria, which had one of the highest population growths in the world. Uh, didn't help Yemen, hasn't helped Egypt, which is a lot of political strife, doubled its population in a very small amount of time. You know, it, it is it is a hidden, I believe, contributor. Yeah. Yeah, man, we're covering a lot of ground here in a really short amount of time. I feel like um, each of these 
individual topics we could probably do an entire hour-long episode on. And I'm sure you probably have on your podcast. So I think if listeners are interested in hearing more about this, they should definitely be checking out the Post-Growth Australia podcast. But before we finished, I did want to be sure that we get to something that Sustainable Population Australia is doing in response to this 8 billion day coming up. And they're having an 8 billion day competition. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? It's a writer's competition where in 100 words or less, you answer the question, what does 8 billion people mean to the planet, the environment and for you? It's a direction we haven't really gone down before. And no, I think Sustainable Population Australia is a largely rational, scientific, academic organisation. But I thought this is a really emotive day and it'd be good to get people's emotive responses. So at the time of recording, the competition does close tomorrow. It is open to people who are Australian residents and not current members of SPA because we don't want to see the same names (laughs) we want to open it up to the broader public and so far the response has been really good we've had entries from names i've never seen before which is great and a lot of comments on social media the public discourse is that people are rather than the united nations population fund saying that eight billion people are eight billion opportunities and that it's not really an issue. Uh, for many people, it is an issue. I gotta say, I love the question. As as the uh, method that we use on this very podcast, when we offer people a challenge, the very first question we ask is, what does the environment mean to you? And we use that as our starting place for having deeper discussions on the environment that is important not to me, but to our guests, right? We try to try to tailor each challenge to our guests' values and what they think about the environment. What part of the environment do they love? And so I really feel like this is kind of in that similar vein of of opening up doors to having conversations about overpopulation, but meeting people where they're at and talking about what it means to them instead of just, you know, spitting facts at them. So I, I love it. I think it's a great idea. And I think it's working for us too. You know, when we came up with a question, we may have been subliminally influenced by uh, <laughs> my previous in- interview with you, not uh, not intentionally. So um, um, please don't sue us for stealing your idea. But no. <laughs> not at all. Even even if it were intentional, I would be honored. I mean, it's not it's not obviously not my original idea. Really That's true. From Joshua Spodek of, of the original This Sustainable Life podcast, but. He is, of course, always trying to get more people to do what we now call the Spodek method with more people regularly. And I feel like this is just another branch of of doing the same thing. Well, you can tell Joshua that we've um, uh, taken his advice and um, that we're doing something other than just more discussion papers. So I (laughs) I think he'd be happy about that. Yeah. I think he would be delighted to hear that. Even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't an intentional use of of his idea, there, I think mm. he's just going to be happy to hear that more people are starting to focus more on talking to people and talking about what things mean to them, as opposed to 
the broader scientific community or us. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and that's not to diss all the other stuff that SPA does, which I believe is high quality. It's just that I think we need to, we all need to broaden and diversify and, and facts have a place, but so do the emotions and the personal journeys and making it, making it real for people's day-to-day lives. And I think if you can have both of those together, that it can only complement each other. Well said. We're about to run out of time here. So is there anything, any places that people can go to find you online, websites, where can they find your podcast, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I've got a personal website, michaelbayless.org, that you can find. You can also read the article of my asbestos misadventure in full by going to MediumNet and I think typing Michael Bayless in the search engine or Michael Bayless Asbestos, even better. I'm not sure if I'll end up having my name <laughs> tagged with the bloody stuff now, probably. <laughs> um, but, but by the way, my rental, I had to pay for the testing, of course, and it did actually come back negative, so I'm not going to be dead in 20 years. So in case anyone was concerned, I thought I'd better just qualify that. Otherwise, Post Growth Australia podcast put that in your search engine fantastic sustainable population australia look i i reckon i don't have a social media handle yet for pig app but there are definitely ones for sustainable population australia and since they financially support pig app all roads lead to rome so yeah you'll find you'll find me you'll find us excellent Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. I really appreciate having you on. Are there any last things you wanted to leave for the listeners before we wrap this one up? Just be very aware of the role that the growth-based economy, including housing speculation, development, property development, and also the role of population grow i think they're factors um that we overlook oh yeah i'm gonna say at our peril but there there are always things we can do and i hope i'm just one example of action can lead to hopefully less perilous outcomes (laughs) i feel like that's kind of a common theme that we have here talking about environmental problems on this podcast michael bayless thank you so much for coming on hopefully uh, i'll be able to talk to you again sometime thank you eugene really appreciate it thank you Hey guys, Eugene here from Verdant Growth and host of This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature. I've been doing this podcast for a few months now, and I could use some help. I just don't have the time to edit episodes like I did during the pandemic, and I've had to hire an editor. I don't have enough to pay them for as many episodes as I'd like to do per month. If you're interested in supporting me and my podcast, try donating, one time or monthly. Even one dollar helps. I love doing this show, but I can't do it as much as I'd like without your help. If you can't donate, just hit that subscribe button or tell your friends. Me and the rest of the world could use your help. Let's work together to make this planet we call home a great place through sustainability. Thank you.